You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We will read together verses 7 through 14 of John chapter 4. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask drinks, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would match today the teaching and truth of your word with the needs of your people, both those felt needs and the needs that we are not even aware of. We pray that you would feed us today by your word as we feast upon it. We pray that you would reveal to us truth therein, and the Spirit of God, you would be our teacher and guide us in these things. May this time be profitable and productive for the equipping and edifying of your people, for the praise of your glorious grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, man, <clears throat> among all of God's created creatures, man, it seems, is unique in that mankind has this seemingly insatiable appetite or appetites for things that this world cannot satisfy. It seems like this world, though it <clears throat> offers us a number of things. Hold on a second. <clears throat> Man, I'm sorry, I don't know where that came from. This world, though it offers us a, a plethora of opportunities and pleasures and and uh, things which you would think would satisfy us, man simply cannot be satisfied with any of those things. Charles Spurgeon once said that our spirit craves for something more than time and sense can yield. Hear that? Our spirit craves for something more than time or sense can yield. Nothing which comes of earth, even if it should yield a transient satisfaction, can long maintain its excellence. And he's right. We have in us something that longs to be satisfied, but never seems to be satisfied. I'm reading a book, Does God Believe? It's titled, Does God Believe in Atheists? And it's kind of a, a review or a, a preview, as it were, of all of the philosophies that have come and gone throughout the history of, of this earth. And uh, I came across a quote by Jean-Paul Sartre. Does anybody know who Jean-Paul Sartre is? You've probably heard the name. He's a famous French existentialist philosopher. You can't say that very fast at all. A famous French existentialist philosopher. And Jean-Paul Sartre said this, There comes a time... When we ask, even of Shakespeare, even of Beethoven, is that all there is? End quote. Now that's profound. There comes a time when even when we are presented with the best that an artist has to offer, the best that a musician gives, that we ask the question, is that all there is? Were you satisfied by the last CD that you bought from your favorite artist or group or singer? He comes out with a new one and guess what? You just got to have that one, don't you? You do. There's something in you that craves for something more. And we ask of even all that the world offers to us, is there anything more? Is that the best that we have to offer? 
Man is an insatiable creature. It is because we are created for eternity, we are created as eternal beings, and we are created to be in a relationship with an eternal God, and we are created to live for all of eternity in an eternal home, and we are not created for this which is around us. Everything around us is dying. It is decaying. It will eventually turn to dust and be burned up by fire, and it cannot possibly satisfy an eternal creature which is going to live on forever. All of us will. Everybody will live forever, either in heaven or in hell, but we are all, all mankind is an eternal being. We will live for all of eternal. We are immortal creatures. We will never die. We will just change locations, as it were, at the point of our death. And so we are surrounded by things which are constantly changing and things which are constantly in flux, and that seems to create in us this longing for something more that nothing around us can satisfy. And man expresses, no matter what culture he is in, no matter what continent he is on, no matter what circumstance he is confronted with, Man, at every time, in every place, in all things, for all time, expresses this longing, this insatiable thirst for things and for something more in a multitude of different ways. Some people pursue false religions and idols. Some people pursue pleasures and they just seek to gratify gratify the lusts of their flesh. And they gratify the lusts of their flesh and guess what? That's never enough, is it? Some people collect positions or uh, power or popularity. Some people are not satisfied until they have things. Everybody's always looking for something outside of themselves to make themselves happy. They think, well, if I were to get married, then I would be truly happy. And guess what? You find out you married somebody who's expecting you to make them happy. So you're living with two people, each expecting the other to do everything in their power to make you happy, each other happy, and you find out you're more miserable than you were before you were act- when you were actually single. Why? Because now you've just got two sinners living in the same household, and that just compounds the issues. And so you say, well, maybe instead of getting married and thinking that will bring me happiness and satisfaction, maybe if I have kids, then they'll make me happy. Ah, guess what? You find out you've just brought a whole bunch more sinners into the home, and they're a bunch of needy, selfish, self-centered, ungrateful, insatiable creatures that have to be constantly looked after and fed until they're finally out of the house, and then you finally get them out of their house, you think, finally, now the kids are gone, now I can be happy, and guess what? Now all of a sudden you're lonely and you're stuck with that person that you married thinking they were going to make you happy and now it's 40 years later and you realize they never made me happy. Now I'm stuck with them expecting them to make me happy. Say, so maybe I can get a pet. (laughs) Maybe a pet will make me happy. No, maybe two pets. More, Maybe more kids. More kids and more pets. Then finally you realize we just have to move. Maybe if I change locations I'll be happy. If I move to a different city, get a different job. What I really need is a new car, a different house, a different location. No, we'll change churches. That'll make me happy. No, maybe if I change jobs, change churches, change locations, change everything, go to an entirely different place, that will make me happy. And so people do this, and they pursue this seemingly endless pursuit of things which can never satisfy, never satisfy. And they never come to a point, like Solomon did in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, when he says, I looked at all of the works which my hands had done under the sun, and guess what? It was all vanity. Solomon says, I pursued pleasure. Didn't find satisfaction in pleasure. I pursued wine. Couldn't find satisfaction in wine. I pursued women. Couldn't find satisfaction in women. I pursued building projects, and I couldn't find satisfaction in building projects. I did all of these things. I did everything that a man was able to do, Solomon says, and I cannot find satisfaction in any of it. It is all vanity, striving after the wind. It is utter and total emptiness. Speaking of all of the accumulation of material possessions that mankind seeks after, theologian John Gerstner writes this, Those who are most successful in acquiring it suffer the greatest disillusionment. You ever notice that? The people who are most successful in acquiring all of this world's goods are the most disillusioned. 
You think, well, I would be different. If I had all of that stuff, then I would be different. Then I would be truly happy. No, you wouldn't. You're just compounding your disillusionment to your foolishness and that you can't learn from the example of other people who maybe have far more than you and are no more satisfied or happy than you are. So Gerstner writes, those who are most successful in acquiring it suffer the greatest disillusionment. They're always piling up but never possessing anything. Animals can eat, drink, and be contented, but man cannot. He cannot be content without these physical gratifications because he has his animal appetites, but being more than an animal, he cannot be content with only them. He cannot live without bread, but neither can he live by bread alone. That's the quandary that man finds himself in. I need this thing, and I want this thing, and he can't just get it like an animal and be content with it. He has to have that, and then that only alerts, his, alerts him to the fact that he wants and quote-unquote needs something more. He can never be content with it. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 shared that same condition that all men have. You and I have this in common with the woman at the well. Before Christ, before salvation, we had an insatiable thirst that nothing and no one could satisfy. Now, the woman at the well did not know that she thirsted. Jesus is going to, in verse 15, slowly begin to show her her thirst, reveal that to her, so to open her mind and her eyes and her spirit up to the fact that, wow, there is this insatiable thirst inside of me, but she had this insatiable thirst that nothing could satisfy. And here's a woman who had had how many husbands? Five husbands. And I'm sure with one, two, three, four, and five, she was always saying to herself, the next one will make me happy. The last five didn't, but the next one. If I can just have that next guy, I'll be happy. No, you won't. No, you won't. An insatiable thirst. An insatiable thirst. And when she wandered up to the well that day, she had no idea that she was thirsting. She had no idea what her need was. She had no idea what she really wanted or what she really needed in life. But she had spent her life pursuing and trying to fill that insatiable thirst with one thing after another, one man after another, one relationship after another, until this Jewish rabbi showed up at the well that day and said, Look, I can offer you living water. You remember, she didn't understand what living water was. We looked at that last week. Living water was just a term that was used in that day, a colloquial expression to describe a bubbling or moving or vibrant or active water as opposed to a stale water, which explains why in verse 11, she still didn't understand. Excuse me, I'm not crying, I'm just choking. <laughs> she still didn't understand what this Jewish stranger was talking about. If you knew who I am, he said, and if you knew what I have to give you, you would ask me and I would give you something greater than what I'm asking you for, that is living water. And she didn't understand what he was talking about. She didn't understand the metaphor, the analogy that he was using. She didn't understand that he was speaking of spiritual things. She thought that he was speaking of physical things, natural water. So we pick it up in verse 11. Pick it up in verse 11. We'll do cover today verse 11 through 14. We're going to look, first of all, at her next expression, or her next question in verse 11. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where is it that you get that living water? <clears throat> sir, you have nothing to dwell with. Now, notice the word sir. Sir was a title of respect. It was a title of honor. It was a way of addressing somebody in a respectful and honorable way, sort of showing dignity and respect to this individual. And when I read that in verse 11, I asked myself, now what has changed? Do you remember her response in verse 9 to his request, give me a drink? What did she say? She had that snarky, that rude, that snide kind of comment. How is it that you, being a Jewish man, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? She was very rude to him. 
Now all of a sudden she is addressing him with a title of respect. Sir, what has happened in the meantime? You know what it is? It's Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stir up strife or anger. Jesus had met her snide comment with a very graceful, very condescending, very humble statement. He did not engage her rude comment and say, okay, look, you wretched sinner that you are, here is how you're such a wretch and here's why you need me. He didn't answer her rudely. He didn't engage her comment on the whole issue between Jews and Samaritans, male and female, cultural taboos, none of that. He bypassed all of that, went right around it, didn't really even give her snideness or her rudeness the time of day, and he went straight to the issue. And he, in a very gentle, condescending, uh, and I don't mean condescending in a negative way, but I mean condescending as he stepped down to her level, and in a very gracious way, a very loving way, a very gentle way, a humble way, he answered her rudeness by saying, look, you don't know who I am, and you don't know what I can offer you. And if you knew who I am, and if you knew who I, what I could offer you, you would ask me, and I would freely, graciously, and immediately give to you what it is that you need most. Now, with that gentle response to her rude comment, you know what Jesus has done? He has melted a heart, and he has warmed or war- uh, won for himself a hearing. He has turned away her wrath, her snideness, and now suddenly her heart is beginning to change, and she addresses him in a very respectful very uh, honorable way. Sir, suddenly she realizes he's not going to play this game on my turf. I've been rude to him and he has been kind to me. That has a way of sort of taking the wind out of your sails, right? Have you ever been rude to somebody only to have them respond to you in the most gracious, loving, and compassionate way possible and suddenly you realize, man, what a jerk I am. He didn't deserve that. That was so out of place. That was so out of character. I shouldn't have done that. That's exactly what Jesus has done to this woman. Now she's addressing him very respectfully. Sir, you, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. How is it that you plan to get that living water? And she still thinks, in verse 11, that he's speaking of physical water, the bubbling water at the bottom of the well, the water that was active that came up into the bottom of the well. You don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. How are you going to get down and draw that water? And she's asking himself, in her mind, she's thinking to herself, well, there must be one of two things. Either he has some unseen ability greater than our father Jacob, some unseen ability to draw out of this water, the water, this well, the water down at the bottom, or he has some other source, some other well that I don't know about. And so her question betrays those, those two questions that she has. You have no bucket, you have no water. Where do you get this water? You have no bucket, you have no rope. Where do you get this living water? Then she asked him, number one, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Second, she questions his superiority of over the well itself. Not only his superiority to Jacob, but his superiority of his water over Jacob's supply. This well was given to us by Jacob, and he drank out of it, and all of his sons, and all of his cattle. So she's concluding one of two things. He either must have a better well, or he must be somebody greater than Jacob. So the first question she asked him, sir, are you, or you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? The you is actually at the beginning of the sentence. It's emphasized and it's stated in such a way as to imply a negative answer, as to almost demand a negative answer. You, a weary traveler, this ordinary Jewish rabbi, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And I notice that she connects herself to Jacob, our father Jacob. Now, was Jacob her father, her forefather, her ancestor? He certainly was. Both she and Jesus could claim Jacob as their father or their ancestor. But in the case of the Samaritan woman, her lineage was so mingled with heathens and non-Jews and Gentiles and pagans and all of that as to make almost any connection to Jacob not even worth mentioning. 
But she's not deterred by the fact. She's not confused by any of that. She claims Jacob as her father. You are not greater than Jacob, are you? And have you noticed the irony of that question? What's the answer to it? He was greater than Jacob, wasn't he? Right? Now, in verse 10, he had suggested to her, you have no idea who you're talking to. And in her mind, she had to be thinking, who does this guy think he is? Who is he? That he would raise that issue that I don't know who I'm talking to. So her question then plays off of his statement, you don't know who you're talking to. So she asked him, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Now, this theme of the greatness of Jesus is something that John brings out all the way through the gospel. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, where John the Baptist said, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Is Jesus greater than John the Baptist? Yeah, he was. Chapter 1, verse 30, John said, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Then in John chapter 3, John the Baptist said, He must increase and I must decrease, because he who comes from heaven is above all. He's greater than all. So this idea or this notion of the greatness of Jesus, his superiority to all other people is something that John has been developing that case all the way through the gospel. Now we get here to John chapter 4, and she questions him. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? In John chapter 5, Jesus is going to claim superiority to Moses. And then in John chapter 8, the subject of whether Jesus is superior to Abraham is going to be debated by the Jews. When Jesus said, Abraham, rejoice to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That's a claim to be superior to Abraham. So was Jesus superior or greater than John the Baptist? Yeah, he certainly was. Was he greater than Jacob? She raises the question. The answer is he certainly was. John chapter 5, is he greater than Moses? Yeah, he's greater than Moses. John chapter 8, is he greater than... No Jew could say this without feeling like he had to wash his mouth out with soap. Is he greater than Abraham? Is it possible to have a human being exist who is greater than Abraham? So all the way through the gospel, the greatness and the superiority of Jesus is the issue that's being dealt with. Now Jesus said back in verse 10, you have no idea who you're talking to. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for something far greater than what I'm asking you for, and I would have given it to you. You are not greater than our father, Jacob, are you? That's questioning the superiority of Jesus over Jacob. Second, she questions the superiority of his source of water over Jacob's source of water. This well was given to us by Jacob. It was dug by Jacob, and Jacob drank out of it. This has fresh, full, uh, abundant supply of water from this well, is it possible that you would have a well that I don't know about in this area or someplace that has a better and fresher and more abundant supply than this well? This well, which was dug by Jacob, and it was sufficient not only for Jacob, but for all of his 12 sons, and his 12 sons and their wives, and his 12 sons and their wives, and all of their multitude of cattle and animals. Countless thousands of creatures would have drank out of that well just in Jacob's time. Can you possibly be offering to me a well that is better than this well right here? That's her statement. Now, she is wrong on two counts. First, she is wrong about who he is. He is indeed greater than Jacob. And second, she is wrong about the type of water that he is offering to her. He is offering to her living water, but she has no idea what he means by that just yet until he answers the question down in verse 13. So look at verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never, never thirst. I want you to stop just right there for a second. Jesus is offering an analogy, and it's important that you and I understand what the analogy is describing so we understand what he's promising and what he is not promising. And it comes down to rightly understanding his analogy. 
He is comparing physical thirst with spiritual thirst. And he is comparing physical water, which quenches physical thirst, to the spirit of spiritual water, which is living water, which is the Holy Spirit, which is eternal life, as that which quenches the spiritual thirst. So we have two different thirsts, and there are similarities, and there are contrasts, and understanding the similarities and the contrasts are important. This may seem very basic, but let's deal with the subject of physical thirst first. Physical, physical thirst and the water that quenches it. Now, you and I thirst physically. I'm thirsty right now. Ever since I got up here, I've had something in my throat. I've coughed. I've choked. I've done all of that. <clears throat> Everything about me right now is drier than a bone. At least that's the way it feels. I'm going to need to drink something as soon as I get done with what I'm doing here today. It's not going to be sufficient. Because before the day is up, I'm going to have to drink again. Probably several times. And I'll drink before I go to bed tonight. And then I'll wake up several times in the middle of the night and have to drink more all the way through the night. Now, I wish that I could just hook up a hose to me while I sleep tonight and <laughs> down about a 1,000 gallons of water overnight and then not have to drink again for the next two or three or four months. But that's not the way it works. The way it works with physical thirst and physical water is that we have this relationship where we thirst and we quench it. But then even though we quench it, the physical water quenches the physical thirst, but only for a time. Eventually, we get thirsty again, and we have to return to the source of refreshment. Now, that's what this woman had done to the well. She needed water, so she went back to the well. She's familiar with the whole idea of physical thirst and physical water, which quenches the physical thirst. The physical water quenches the thirst, but not fully, and not finally, and not forever, only temporarily. Now, let's deal with this. You say, Jim, you're not really taxing my intelligence just yet. I understand that. So now let's deal with spiritual thirst. At the same time, we have a spiritual thirst. What is that spiritual thirst? And what does it result from? And what type of spiritual thirst is Jesus describing here with the woman at the well? We have a spiritual thirst. It is because we are, as I said before, eternal beings, immortal beings that will live forever. But we are spiritually dead. And we have a guilty conscience that we want or need to have cleansed. And I'm I'm describing us before Christ, before conversion. We have a guilty conscience that needs to be cleansed. Not only that, but we have a need for reconciliation to the God that we are created to live in fellowship with. We also need forgiveness for our sins, and we need, more than anything else, eternal life. We need to be made alive again. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are alienated from the life of God. We are separated from Him, and we are born DOA, dead on arrival, with no spiritual capacities, no spiritual abilities, no spiritual life in us whatsoever by which we commune with God. All of that was lost at the fall. So we are spiritually dead creatures that are created to live forever. And so those two things together create in us a thirst. Now, if you walk up to the the average pagan on the street, you walk down to Walmart and you bump into somebody and you ask them, do you spiritually thirst? What would they say? Unless you happen to run into a believer and you didn't know it, they would more more than likely say no. Because the reality is that sinful man doesn't even know what he needs. He's not even aware of his thirst. There is a thirst there. Now Jesus, down in verse 15 and in verses 13 and 14, is beginning to open her eyes up to the reality of her thirst. And that's what has to happen to us. We have to have our eyes opened up to the reality of our thirst. We don't know that we're thirsty. We find all of these ways to sort of numb the thirst, to distract our attention from the thirst, to sort of divert us away from the thirst so we don't feel it as much. But every human being has this spiritual longing 
this spiritual thirst that needs to be satisfied. That spiritual thirst is the need for eternal life. The need for new life to be resurrected from spiritual deadness, to be given new life and to be raised spiritually in Christ, to be regenerated, to be given a new heart, a new life, new affections, and that new principle of life within us, which is the indwelling of the Spirit of God, which is eternal life. That is what satisfies the thirst. So we have a spiritual thirst that needs to be satisfied. But unlike physical thirst, there is nothing in this world that can satisfy my spiritual thirst save only one thing, and that is Christ. What creates my spiritual thirst is my need for eternal life. And there is only one thing that can provide for and satisfy that need, and that is Christ. Work righteousness cannot do it. Religious systems cannot do it. Worshiping idols cannot do it. All of my efforts cannot do it. Keeping myself distracted cannot do it. None of those things can satisfy my spiritual thirst. Now, if you think back about the time that you got saved, you'll probably, if you're like me, you will probably remember a season in your life over a period of time where you started to realize, man, I have a need for something. I have a need for something. Now, at first, I didn't understand what it was. I didn't realize what it was. But I just knew that something was not right. And then the more revelation, the more truth that was revealed to me, I came to understand, now I understand what it is that I need. And now I see how it is that I have been trying to fill that need and satisfy that need with everything else under the sun. And then I came to understand there is only one thing that can satisfy that spiritual need, and that is Christ. Now here is the promise. Physical water satisfies physical thirst for a period of time. It's temporary. The spiritual water, the living water that satisfies our spiritual thirst, satisfies it once, fully, finally, and forever. Do you see the difference? What is the spiritual thirst? It is the need for eternal life. What is it that God provides for us in Christ? It is eternal life, which is in us a fountain of life bubbling up, flowing over constantly, a self-perpetuating, self-renewing, self producing fountain of life. It's not anything we maintain. It's not anything we have. It's not anything we sustain. It's not anything we create. It's something done in us by the work of the Spirit of God. That is the new birth of John chapter 3. That's regeneration. That's what it means to be born again. So notice Jesus' promise in verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst. Never. Now John sort of likes to use this construction in the Greek where he describes something that happens and the effects of it go on forever. Or he describes it in the opposite way of saying, once this happens, then this will never happen. Or he'll describe it in saying, once this happens, it will go on forever. He does it 12 times. That's the most of any New Testament writer in any of the books. The next one, next closest to that is Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews does it eight times. But let me give you a couple examples of how John does this. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You hear that? Never see death. John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said of his sheep in John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. John 11, 26, everyone who thirsts and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. See how John does that? Now why is it that that which satisfies my spiritual thirst goes on forever, and I will never thirst. I will never thirst. Why is that? 
because what has been given to me is within me a source of eternal life. I will never thirst for eternal life again. I can't. Why? Because I have been given life eternal, and that life eternal goes on forever. It will not wane. It does not diminish over the course of time. I might feel the effects of it or the blessings of it to a greater degree at some time than at other times, but that doesn't mean that the source itself has ebbed or flowed. The source itself is constant and full, and it is a satisfaction for my spiritual thirst, and it is a full, a final, and a forever satisfaction for my spiritual thirst. Having been given that, I will never thirst. Never. Now, I do not know how those who believe that you can lose your salvation, I don't even know what they make of those words. What does that mean to you? To me, it means you will never thirst. If my spiritual thirst is for eternal life, and having been given that, I will never thirst. Either Jesus means here, never, or he's confused, or he's lying, or never doesn't mean never. It means never. It means for all of eternity, the life that I have been given now will satisfy me and will provide me life from this moment eons into eternity. And it will never ebb and it will never flow. And there will never come a time when I say to myself, man, I really thirst for eternal life again. That thirst has been finally and fully and forever satisfied. Never to thirst again. Never. Never, never, never. Never means never and it never means nothing else. Never. Now you say, and it would be right for us to say this at this juncture, but Jim, it seems to me I do as a Christian thirst. Because I thirst after holiness and I thirst after righteousness and I have a longing for the Word of God and I long for fellowship with His people and I long for holiness and I long to be out of Romans 7 and to be free from this body of death. I do long for and thirst for perfection and holiness and my eternal state and I want to see heaven and I want to be with Christ. And didn't Paul express thirst when he said, oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Didn't Paul express thirst when he said, um, i just skip my mind just now, it was there. Why, did, why does that happen? It's going to happen more as I get older. He said, who will deliver me from this body of death? And did not Paul himself thirst when he longed, when he said it's better to depart and to be with Christ than it is to remain on here in the flesh? Didn't he want to see heaven? He certainly did. So what do I, what am I to make of these thirsts, these longings that I have? Are they natural? Are they normal? They are. And they're actually the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is appropriate to pray, Lord, give me a longing for this. Increase my thirst and my hunger for this. Increase my dissatisfaction with these things. I want more of that. Those type of longings and those type of thirsts, listen, they are not the thirst that is being described here in John chapter 4. That's why I belabored the analogy so much. The type of longings, the holy affections that we have as children of God, that's not the type of thirst that Jesus is describing in John chapter 4 and saying you will never thirst again. Before you were saved, you thirsted after sin. Once you got saved, all of a sudden now you have new affections. And you thirst for holiness. And you thirst for righteousness. And you hunger and thirst for God's Word. Fellowship with God's people. The preaching of the Word. Joining together. Worship. Righteousness. Those things are natural affections that we have. Listen, you didn't have those before you were saved. You didn't have those. The woman at the well has, at this point, absolutely no desire for spiritual things and no thirst for hunger or for righteousness or holiness or heaven or being with God's people or truth. She doesn't have any of those. You don't have those until you're born again. And here's what the Spirit of God does. 
He replaces the thirst for life eternal with a whole different set of affections and thirsts which He creates in us. And then He meets those needs and those thirsts and He feeds that hunger and He satisfies those longings. But those longings are not the same longings here in John chapter 4. My spiritual longing is for eternal life. That has been met. Done. I, I no longer and will never long for eternal life again. I have it. It's my present possession and it will be forever. I will never thirst after eternal life. But does that mean that I will never spirit, uh, experience any spiritual thirsts of a different sort? They're different. See, these affections are joyous affections. These affections are ones that I want to continue. I want more of these things. I want to experience more and more of that eternal life. I want to experience more and more of it in my practice, in my emotions, in my affections, in my desires, in my insights, in my mind, in my heart, my will, and my soul. I want to experience all of that more. But my hunger, my thirst for eternal life has been fully and forever satisfied. Different affections. Do you understand that? Different affections. J.C. Ryle, commenting on John chapter 4, said this, This does not mean that we shall never feel any spiritual want at all. It is natural and is normal for us as believers to feel spiritual wants. He says, this does not mean that we will never feel any spiritual want at all. It simply asserts the abiding and enduring nature of the benefits which Christ gives. He that drinks of the living water that Christ gives shall never entirely and completely lose the cleansing, purifying, and soul-refreshing effects which it produces. There is in you, Christian, listen, a well of eternal life springing up, bubbling up, that is the satisfaction for your need for spiritual life. Now we have these different desires, these different thirsts, these different longings, holy affections, Jonathan Edwards used to call them, holy affections that we have that are different than the affections and desires that we had before we got saved. But now that we have holy affections, how do we get those satisfied? How is it that I get those satisfied? Let me answer that question with one question. Do I go to a different source to satisfy those longings then I go to the source to satisfy my need for spiritual life. No, I don't. Now I have the fountain of living waters, Yahweh, the Creator, the Almighty God, living within me. And He is the satisfaction for my deep spiritual need for eternal life. And I turn to Him to satisfy the longings of my heart for all of those holy affections that now are present as a result of that well-being within me. So I have now in me a constant supply that refreshes not only my thirst for spiritual life, which I don't have anymore, but now the daily thirst that I have to experience and to know more of that eternal life, which is my present possession. Does that make sense? Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that you have seen fit to meet this need in us. We thank you for the spiritual and holy affections, which are ours now as a result of being saved. Thank you that you satisfied our deepest need in giving us eternal life. That was what we needed more than anything else. We thank you that we didn't, even though we did not even know that we needed these things, that you made us aware of that need and then you met that need. Thank you for that grace and that eternal life which has begun now and will continue forever into all of eternity. Thank you that we will never thirst for spiritual life, that having been granted that and given that by Christ, we will never hunger for it or thirst for it again. We thank you for that bread of life which has come down out of heaven and given his life for the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.